Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're finishing up the book of Ephesians. We are going to cover the topic of spiritual warfare here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 10 to 17. And uh, I want to start just by reading the passage together. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is finishing up this book of Ephesians. We're going to take a couple weeks here to, to close it out. But today we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. And, you know, too often people get their doctrine of spiritual warfare from Hollywood, poltergeist, uh, ghostbusters, rather than the Word of God. It's interesting um, here, if you look in Scripture and you look at what are the doctrine of demons, what is spiritual warfare, what you see is a laundry list of sins that they're not quite that um they're not quite ghostbusters are they they're much more common to our experience uh paul talks about sexual sin that that um by withholding from one another you give a foothold for the devil that satan would tempt you because of your lack of self-control all over scripture a false religion false teaching false jesus we're going to come back to it when we take communion today in 1 Corinthians 10, but you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, which is idolatry. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, bitterness and wrath and malice. And in chapter 5, foolishness and drunkenness. This is demonic warfare against our souls. Idle gossip and busybodying in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Lies in John 8. Satan's the father of lies. He's been lying from the beginning. And 1 John 5 summarizes all of this battleground of spiritual warfare as idolatry. In fact, uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to, to see what Paul here says about spiritual warfare. His summary of spiritual warfare is that it is in the battleground of the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So he's talking about spiritual warfare, that it's not a battle in the flesh. Instead, 
he's going to say, verse 5, we destroy arguments. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I don't know if you've thought about this, but spiritual warfare is primarily in the battleground of the mind. Satan is tempting you to believe lies that are not true. Maybe that you're not forgiven, that you've outsinned the grace of God, that surely God couldn't save someone like you. Or believe the lies that my spouse, you know, surely our marriage is over, or my children, surely there's no hope for my kids, or, or all of these things that cause us to fear and give us anxiety. Satan would love nothing more than to get you believe that God is not for you, that Jesus' death is not sufficient, and the Spirit is not powerful enough to help you in your daily life. And what we have to do is we have to remind ourselves of what's true. Everything we've seen in the book of Ephesians, it starts with all of these indicatives. This is what we have in Jesus. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is what we're to know, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we're alive. That we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not only that, we've been raised and seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That, that we have the Spirit of God as the down payment and pledge of our inheritance. This is what Paul is just rehearsing over and over so that by the time he gets to chapter 6 in Ephesians, what we're going to see is these enemies are defeated foes. More on that in a moment. Our gatherings on Sundays, though, Paul had said in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is where we prepare for war. This spiritual warfare. How? Not by doing spiritual push-ups. Not by um, sort of psyching ourselves up to be ready for the week. Rather, we're reminding ourselves of what is true in Jesus. Everything that we have in Him. How it applies to our life. And reminding us that we're not alone. We haven't been abandoned. We haven't been forsaken. We've been given the Spirit of God. And greater is the one who's in us than the one who's in the world. Spurgeon said we ought to regard the church not as a luxurious hostelry where Christian gentlemen may each one dwell at his ease in his own inn, but as a barracks in which soldiers are gathered together to be drilled and trained for war. And this section of Ephesians, this letter ending, they're part of this larger battle of good and evil. Paul is basically telling the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God. But Satan would love to lie to us and tell us that we're not even in a war. Sometimes we buy into it. We don't think we're in a war. We just get into going through life passively. Jonathan Edwards, the, the great uh, pastor from the 1700s, said, what we're going, uh, God has appointed this whole life to be all as a race or a battle. The state of rest wherein we will be so out of danger as to have no need of watching and fighting is for another world. So we're in a battle. It's assumed. In fact, some of you know you're in a battle, don't you? Some of you have been battling 
this spiritual warfare and you are exhausted and weary and worn out and you're at the end of your strength. And I trust the message today would give you hope to not grow weary in well-doing. To rejoice that your Savior Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and principalities and powers and authorities, their defeated foes. And He's for you. And if God did not spare His Son, how will He not with Him freely give you all things? So you can take hope that even what you're going through will pass. That Jesus is coming back, that He's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things right. What we're going to see today is that the armor of God provides for this spiritual war and this armor of God is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That the commands to be strong and to stand firm and put on the armor of God are another way of saying put on the Lord Jesus or remember everything that you've been blessed with in Christ through the Spirit. We will win this war. Satan and his minions are defeated foes. So beginning in verse 10 back in Ephesians 6. First command, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. In the Greek, this verb is in a passive voice, meaning be made strong or be strengthened. It's the same word that's in chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul prays that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner being. We don't empower ourselves. Our strengthening comes from an external source. Here, it's from the Lord Jesus and the strength of His might, which comes from the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. He had reminded the Ephesian believers by praying for them in chapter 1 that, oh, guess what? Oh, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know a few things. The greatest thing in chapter 1 is that the power that raised Jesus from the grave is at work in your lives already. It's not that you don't have it. It's that the eyes of our heart need to be enlightened to see it. That what's at work in us and for us is nothing less than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who He's the one who is the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave. That's the kind of power that we have in our lives. So be strengthened in that. And this is in the Lord Jesus that we're strengthened. We, Paul had been talking about union with Jesus throughout I would point you to chapter 2, verse 21, where we're being built as a people into the temple, the house of the Lord, a fit dwelling place for the Spirit. And what a temple means is that this is where God's presence is. He's with us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forsaken us. There's an old Hebrew word, ichavod. Ichabod is our... our um, English name that comes from it, of course, we know that from uh, Christmas times coming, right? Ichabod Crane. Uh, but that means the glory has departed. Ichavod in Hebrew. That's what happened in the Old Testament. The glory of God departed the Old Testament temple. But here's the reality in the New Testament the glory will never depart. It's not a building in Jerusalem anymore. It is us, the people of the living God. And God is with us. Christ has in chapter 2 settled down and made himself at home in our hearts that is an incredible reality that god is with us this is what we celebrate at christmas coming up that emmanuel 
Jesus is God with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might, in His mighty power. This is the power of God working on our behalf through the Holy Spirit. He emphasizes the importance of this power in the verse by placing it last. He, he, he's, he's saying be strengthened by everything that you have in Jesus that the Spirit has applied in the New Covenant. I'm summarizing all six chapters of Ephesians here. But I have a slide on the next uh, slide. Go back. There you go. Once we were dead, chapter 2, verse 1. Now we are alive. Once we were under the dominion of Satan, now we're seated in the heavenly realms. Once we were objects of wrath, now we are His glorious inheritance. Once we were separate, alienated from the life of God, now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once we were foreigners without hope and without God, now we are fellow citizens, heirs of this kingdom that's to come. Once we were aliens, now we're household members. Once we were infants, now we're maturing in Christ. Once we were living according to our old self, now we have put off the old self and we've put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we were darkness, now we are light in the Lord. This is the argument throughout the book of Ephesians. And so when Paul says to the Ephesians in closing, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, he's thinking about all of these realities that we have. Hallelujah! I need to hear this today. Because Satan is tempting me to believe that I am still in that category of what I once was. He's tempting you to believe that. That sin you're battling with that you thought was done away with forever and now it's creeped up again. And you're tempted to believe, maybe I'm not really a Christian. That battle that you're facing, the temptations you're facing, and you're weary and wore out and you're thinking, do I have the power to resist this? Well, not in your old self, but if you're in Christ, you're a new creature and you have all of these realities. Chapter 1, verse 3, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so don't grow weary. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Well, how do we get strengthened? Paul explains it. He says, put on the armor of God, verse 11. This echoes the earlier command in chapter 4, verse 24, to put on the new self. In fact, putting on the armor is probably a synonym for putting on the new self. And he says in verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It is a complete set of armor. It's able to completely protect us. The Father wants us to be protected fully in this spiritual warfare. And if you read the commentators, the armor of God can either mean the armor which God supplies, it can mean the armor which God Himself wears, or it can mean the armor that is God Himself. And I would argue that it's the last one because Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. This armor is available to all Christians. We all have this armor because as Christians, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the reason that we put on the armor of God or put on the Lord Jesus Christ is so that we can stand against the schemes, the strategies, the tactics of the devil. In fact, four times in verses 11 to 14, we're told to stand, to stand firm. Now, Satan, he tries to gain a foothold and exercise influence over our lives a number of different ways. In fact, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we see it's through conduct that was characteristic of our old way of life, chapter 4, verse 22. Through lying, verse 25. Through uncontrolled anger, verse 26. Through stealing, verse 28. Through unwholesome talk, verse 29. And so he tries all these different strategies. In fact, um, I've, I've used that illustration from the Puritans about Satan being a master fisherman who baits the hook of our flesh with the bait of this world system. And he knows how to take the bait of this world system and catch you with those temptations you're uniquely susceptible to because of your life and your experiences and the things that try to capture your affections. But this passage shouldn't make us fear. This passage of putting on the armor of God, knowing that we stand against the schemes and strategies and tactics of the devil should give us hope and courage. Why? Because the victory has been won. According to chapter 1, verses 18 to 22, Paul says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened to know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The victory's already been won. The Father is summing up all things in Jesus, and the enemy will finally be removed one day. So in chapter 1, Paul tells the Ephesians, guess what? Jesus has been raised far above all principalities and powers and authorities and rulers. Chapter 2, we've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. By the time we get to chapter 6 now, And he says that our enemies, verses 12 and 13, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Guess what? Jesus is above them, chapter 1. We've been seated in the heavenlies with Jesus, chapter 2. So guess what? They're defeated foes. We're already above them. We're in Christ. And putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, putting on the armor of God, reminding ourselves that this is a reality means that we can stand firm in the day of trouble. We can stand firm. Our warfare is spiritual and the armor is necessary. And this word struggle, when he says wrestle, The ESV translates it wrestle because it comes from wrestling, the sport of wrestling. Every soldier in the Roman army knew how to use close hand-to-hand combat wrestling. I mean, could be translated jujitsu maybe. No, I don't know. Just kidding. It's not. Um, Pancratia, pancratia would be the uh, Greek version that the Spartans knew of. But what he's saying is this is close quarter spiritual warfare this is in close our struggle is against these enemies but we've been delivered 
from this dark realm. We've been given every spiritual gift in Christ in the heavenly places. We've been made alive and seated with Jesus in His domain. So our struggle is against subjected powers. They're not greater than Jesus. We can win. We can stand firm. That's great hope. This is why James says in chapter 4, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And so we take up the armor of God, verse 13, that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Paul really wants you to stand firm in this war. And this reminds us that we can resist, resist the devil because the Father's provided everything that we need for the battle. Now, a little comment on the armor of God. If you grew up in church and you had armor of God lesson in Sunday school and you built it out of cardboard, and I did that, I remember, putting on all of these things, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, etc. The armor of God has been at times interpreted to encourage greater human righteousness and effort. For example, the belt of truth you might have been taught that it was study the Word so well or speak the truth with integrity. The, the breastplate of righteousness, acting righteously in as many situations as possible. Feet fitted with the gospel of peace, proclaiming the gospel in as many places as possible. The shield of faith, stirring up willpower and belief. The problem is, how do we ethically provide the salvation that's in the helmet or how are we responsible for the sword of the spirit brian chapel in his commentary on ephesians says the believer is in danger of missing the point of the apostle if he asks the question how can i provide truth righteousness the gospel of peace faith salvation in the spirit but if the armor is in fact supplied by the father through the person and work of the lord jesus christ Paul's point becomes crystal clear. He would do well to ask, who supplies truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Spirit? Who's the one who supplies it? The Father in His Son. And applies it by the Spirit. So Paul is not saying, do more, be better, work harder. Otherwise, you're going to give in in this spiritual warfare. Paul is saying, who is the one who gives us this armor? It's God the Father in the person of His Son. And when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're able to stand firm. Stand firm, he says, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So I would say verse 14 down to 16 is stand firm in Jesus. It's a command to be steadfast, to stand in the faith, to, to stand firm because God has supplied the armor. We don't stand firm in order to receive the armor. We stand firm because we have the armor. And our confidence is not in our abilities, but in the ability of our armor to withstand the assault. The, blessed, the, the, the belt of truth, verse 14, the belt referred to the leather apron which hung under the armor and protected the thighs. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. There's a, there's a dispute in the commentaries over what is Paul thinking about when he looks at this armor? Was it the Roman guard that he was looking at while he was in prison? 
perhaps chained to, this Roman centurion? Or is he looking at the Old Testament promises of God? That God is a warrior and God delivers His people and God is armored and able to win the battle. Well, you're going to see that I lean towards that latter one rather than the Roman soldier. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. But with righteousness He shall judge the poor. This is Messiah. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist and faithfulness the belt of His loins. The armor that the Messiah Himself wears in the book of Isaiah is now provided for His people as they fight in spiritual warfare. So what does this mean? In Christ, we have the belt of truth in the Gospel of our salvation. Do you remember back in chapter 4 that Paul reminds the Ephesians, do you remember how you learned Christ? Chapter 4, verse 20. That you beheld the truth that is in Jesus, chapter 4, verse 21. Well, now put on that belt of truth. You learn Jesus and the truth is in Him. Put on the Lord Jesus. He's the one who's true. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Him, which means you have no reason to fear that you will out the grace of God, that you will be cast out of the good blessings of the Gospel. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Remember what's true. Remember what's true. Second, he says, put on this breastplate of righteousness, this piece of armor that covers the chest. Over in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is Messiah again. The promised Messiah who's going to come and be a warrior for his people and deliver them and save them. And he has armor and now we have the armor of God because we're in Jesus. In Christ, we have a breastplate of righteousness. In fact, Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, the righteousness we have is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Himself. Christian, when you think about the struggles you're going through right now, and you think about how does your Father in heaven see you? How does He look at you? What does He see? Well, what does the Gospel say? In Christ, He no longer sees your sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son. You are not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus paid for your sin by taking it upon Himself. And in your place, He gave you His righteousness. And the Father says, when He looks at you, He sees you as saints and holy ones and righteous. That is good news in our battle, isn't it? Because we don't look at ourselves that way. We look at ourselves with disgust and discouragement and, and we want to just throw it all in and say, when am I ever going to be like Jesus? And we start to believe the lie that somehow because we're not yet like Jesus that we never will be. And so we have to remember what's true in Jesus. That He is our righteousness. 
That the reason we're a Christian today is not because of our righteousness, but because of His. The reason we're still saved is because Jesus paid it all. And we have to remember that His Spirit is making us righteous like Jesus. But He's going to get to that in a little bit. Third, He says, having fitted your feet with the shoes of the gospel of peace. These were the shoes of that were used on long marches of Roman soldiers, if you take that illustration. In Jesus, we have the shoes of the gospel of peace. Well, isn't that what chapter 2 said back in Ephesians? Verse 14, He Himself is our peace, who made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Our feet have been fitted with the shoes of the Gospel of peace. Jesus is our peace. This is what Isaiah 52, 7 says. This is what Isaiah 40 says. That our God reigns. That He's the one who announces peace. That He is the Prince of Peace. And He brings peace. Now we're able to bring this news, of course. Because we're Christ's ambassadors. I love these pictures of the Messiah in Isaiah. You see Him fitted with armor to come and brings salvation through judgment. But what's incredible in Isaiah 49 is that Yahweh bears His arm, rolls up His sleeves in the work of salvation. Isaiah 49.3 and 52.10. And yet in Psalm 19, all of the created universe is just His finger play. It's just His, his easy work, as it were. Now, we know God is omnipotent. All work is easy for God. It's not like it took him more. But what is that picture of him rolling up his sleeves? He's getting into the mix. He's, he's, he's drawing near. He's eminent. It's not a distant God. It is God the Father who drew near in the person of His Son. Jesus became incarnate and added to Himself a human nature and died for our sins and was buried and rose again on our behalf. And He's now seated at the right hand of God. This is the one who is our peace. And then he goes on to say back in Ephesians 6, the next piece of armor is the shield of faith. Having taken up the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. This shield is a picture of God's protection of His people. In Jesus, we have the gift, which is the shield of faith. Faith itself being the gift. That's what chapter 2, verses 4 to 8 say. That we're saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But yet we are His workmanship. His handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And so when Paul says, take up the shield, which is faith. It should bring us back to chapter 2. And Satan's strategies have always been the same. In that evil day, he's the accuser of the brethren. 
He basically tells us God is not good and He is not for you. But the reality is, the immeasurable greatness of God's power is already poured out on our behalf. And the armor is all that we need because the armor is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and all the benefits we have in Him. It's what causes Paul in Romans 8 to cry out, and all these things were more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear the spiritual warfare embedded in Romans 8? These rulers, these authorities, powers, these principalities, these spiritual forces that are our enemies, they could never separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. That's really, really good news. In Christ, we have all that we need. Verse 17, Paul uses a a little different picture here. Well, the picture is like the soldier has his armor on. He's about to put on his helmet and take up his sword to go into battle. And, And it's this receiving of this armor. We see this turning towards the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as it were. Receiving the helmet of salvation. In Christ, we've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the Father might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Remember when I preached on that in chapter 2? I I love this picture that Frank Griffith used to always talk about. In the ages to come, the Father's going to continually reveal to us His grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. And that ages to come was used in Greek literature outside of salvation context to talk about waves hitting a seashore. As one wave rolls along the shore, one over another over another, this is what eternity is going to be like. In the coming ages, as one rolls one upon another upon another, the Father is going to continually reveal His grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. (laughs) We're never going to outgrow the Gospel. We're never going to get over it. We're never going to get so used to it that it becomes common. No, the Father is going to show us for all eternity how much He loves us and how much He's given us in Jesus. That is incredible. We have the helmet of salvation that's been provided. The Spirit has applied this to us. In fact, He's called the sword of the Spirit here in verse 17. The sword given by the Spirit is the Word of God. The Spirit makes the sword powerful and effective in giving it its cutting edge. In fact, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is what? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God in the hands of the Spirit is able to open us up and lay us bare and discern our thoughts and intents. Not simply to wound us, but to heal us. The author of Hebrews applies that a few verses later in verse 16 when he says, Let us therefore 
with boldness, chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews, approach the throne of grace with confidence and find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. This is the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. We have this sword of the Spirit and the Spirit, what is He in the book of Ephesians? Well, chapter 1, He's the promise and guarantee the down payment of our inheritance that we are in fact going to receive it. This word comes from God. It emphasizes the speaking forth of the message proclaiming Christ empowered by the Spirit. In fact, for, for Jason at least, I know he's had Greek. Anybody else who's interested in Greek, it's not the word logos, which is normally the word for word, but it's the word chrema or breath. It's this emphasizing the powerful effect of this word. We heard in Isaiah 11 that the Messiah is going to destroy the wicked with the breath of his lips. It's repeated again in Revelation 19 that Jesus destroys all of his enemies when he returns with the breath of his mouth, speaking a word. What Paul is talking about here is not some random word directly addressed to Satan, not binding or commanding him as if something we say can defeat him. Rather, this word is the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the realm of darkness so that men and women held by Satan can hear this liberating and life-giving message and be freed from his grasp. This is the good word that the Spirit uses that is the sword of the Spirit in our hands that not only delivers us, it delivers others. Brian Chapel, in his commentary on Ephesians reminds us what to tell ourselves in that day of Satan's evil attack. He says, we should not say Satan cannot touch me because of how truthful, righteous, and faithful I've been, as if that was the armor of God. Rather, we should say, I am protected by the truth that though I feel weak, I am strong. Though I may fall, I possess Christ's righteousness. And though I'm not perfect, I have peace with my God who has provided the faith I could not conjure, for faith too is a gift of God, the salvation I could not earn, and the Spirit I daily need. Isn't that incredible? Let me repeat that again. We should say, I am protected by the truth that though I feel weak, I am strong. Though I may fall, I possess Christ's righteousness. And though I'm not perfect, I have peace with my God who has provided the faith I could not conjure, the salvation I could not earn, and the spirit I daily need. That's what it means to put on the armor of God. To remind ourselves of everything that we have in Jesus Christ. Now what about those of you who don't feel strong? Those of you who've battled with the same sin your whole life. Those who don't feel that God's mighty power is working within you. I've been there. I felt that way. Maybe you were praying for strength to conquer a lust and you want God to strike the desire dead and if anything, the lust is stronger than before. Well, let me say, perhaps He's giving you the strength to pray more fervently and more often. Paul's going to continue. We're going to look at it next week that into prayer as part of the uh, spiritual warfare that we need to to have he may be teaching you to to love him more not because of what he does but simply because of who he is 
He's already shown you how much He's loved you in Christ. Maybe He's teaching you that when you can't see Him doing good, you're trusting Him because He is good. Maybe He's showing you that His strength is made perfect in weakness. After all, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Perhaps He's doing it to break down your pride and make you humble. What I would encourage you with is if He never gives you a visible expression of His strength and overcoming and defeating a given sin, be resolved to wait upon Him. Isn't this what He said in Isaiah? They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They shall walk and not grow weary. They shall run and not faint. Maybe He's teaching us to wait. After all, we're waiting on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to make all things new. This world is not our home. We're pilgrims passing through. And in our passing, we're in a war. And this battle won't be over. We'll lay our sword down and our life down at the same time. And so, be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Don't be discouraged in that. Be encouraged because greater is the one who's in you than the one who's in the world. In Jesus, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing and we've been given the Holy Spirit who is the down payment and pledge of our inheritance. Hallelujah. What a salvation. Father, thank You for this time and this Word. Encourage my brothers and sisters. I know some of what they're going through. I know what they've shared with me. I've prayed with them. I've wept with them. You said it's a good thing that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's good for us to know what one another are struggling with and wrestling over and battling so that we can share the load. We can minister and serve as a priesthood of believers that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus to one another. Father, As we go from here, as we face this battle, may we put on the armor of God, Your armor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember everything that we have in Him and live out of that. Be able to stand firm in the day of trouble. I love it that in this illustration we're not told to advance the line. We're not told to gain ground. We're simply told to stand. To be still and know that you're God. You're the one who gains the ground. You're the one who advances the line. We have this great promise that the Lord Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And that the Spirit is coming to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we want to cling to Jesus. We want to keep in step with the Spirit, relying upon His power in our life. Be filled with Him to love and serve you and love and serve one another. Do this in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.